right, the section of scripture on which tonight's teaching is based comes from the Gospel of Matthew chapter 8. We're going to look at verses 5 through 17. I'll have them here on the screen. They're also available in your service folder. It goes as follows. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one go and he goes and that one come and he comes. I say to my servant, do this and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then Jesus said to the centurion, Go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that very moment. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her. He got up, she got up and began to wait on him. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and he bore our diseases. This is God's word. Uh, I'm going to show you the, the four points I'm going to divide the lesson, the teaching into tonight. It goes as follows. I struggled a little bit with how to categorize these, but we're going to talk uh, on an overview of miracles. And we're going to look at the purpose of miracles, the occasion for miracles, or the events surrounding or the backdrop against which miracles uh, seems to, seem to happen, where Jesus grants them. We'll look at the method of the miracle maker, and finally, we'll look at us making miracles, and I'll explain what that means. But the purpose of miracles, the occasion for miracles, the methods, what, what is going on, what is happening when Jesus provides a miracle, the method of the miracle maker, and finally, making miracles. First of all, the purpose of miracles. Uh, this, this section, obviously, in our worship theme tonight is all about miracles, and one of the reasons this particular section of Scripture is so beneficial is because it gives us a lot of things right in a row. So if you back up even to what D'Angelo was reading a couple minutes ago, to the beginning of chapter 8 of Matthew, you get Jesus healing somebody who is, uh, who is stricken with leprosy. And then we just read about Jesus healing the centurion's servant who is paralyzed. And then we read about Jesus healing the uh, mother-in-law of Peter who is stricken with some kind of sickness which is causing a great fever. And then we read that numerous other people who were suffering from either sickness or demon possession were also brought to Jesus and he heals all of them. And by seeing like three or four accounts in a row of Jesus doing miracles, what it does is it helps, helps us understand some overarching principles about what miracles are, what they're meant to be the purpose of miracles. So for instance, part of what we see is that miracles are not uh, naked acts of power that Jesus does. They're not just grand displays of what he's capable of. They're not parlor tricks. Uh, Jesus is not flying around. Jesus is not levitating little children. Jesus is not making donkeys disappear. They all have a purpose attached to them. 
Now, the purpose, obviously, you could say, what, what is it precisely? It's glorifying God. That's true. Uh, it's blessing other people and serving humanity, and that's certainly true. And it's leading many people to worship Jesus Christ. But I think there's a point even bigger than all of this. And there are some exceptions to what I'm getting at here. I think you could find, if you surveyed all the miracles in the Gospels, you'd see some Uh, For instance, Jesus turning water into wine or Jesus walking on water. And you'd say, what exactly are those restoring in the world? Those seem to be kind of just acts of power. And I would actually argue that they're illustrations of the coming kingdom. And that all Jesus' miracles, the purpose of them, again, is not just to show off tremendous power, even though they do show his messiahship and power. The purpose of what he's seeking to do is they are a divine restoration to the natural order. The way, see, it's a callback to the way things once were prior to sin in the world. And it's a foreshadowing to what life is one day going to be once there is no longer any sin in the world. Jesus' miracles all have purpose of healing intended to them by eliminating the, 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 the products of sin. So, for instance, his miracles are not just, again, making something fly around in the air. He gives food to the hungry. He gives uh, healing and strength to the crippled. He gives sight to the blind and uh, hearing to the deaf. He gives calm to the storms. He gives peace to the demonized. He gives life to the dead. What is Jesus' miracles are primarily addressing the brokenness and the suffering that exists in the human race that is brought on by sin. If you were to put this in modern terms, I, I might say, just take this past week, for instance. If Jesus was doing ministry in 2018 here in Milwaukee, what would it look like? What would his miracles specifically be? They wouldn't be these kind of blind and naked acts of power. So, for instance, I don't think Jesus would have, back in the fall, uh, gone out of his way to predict, even though he might have been able to, I don't think he would have gone out of his way to uh, correctly predict what the Mega Millions Powerball jackpot numbers were going to be. Why? Because that would be ultimately just for the goal of personal gain. It would be a selfish aim at them. What Jesus might do if he was doing his ministry here today and working miracles, he might actually have calmed the storm the polar vortex from this past week. Why? Because weather was never intended to be that violent. Weather was never intended to exist in such a way that humans could not actually exist out in the elements. And a couple people died because they were out in the elements for too long. Weather was never intended to stifle the education of children and how many different schools got shut down because the weather was intolerable. Weather was never intended to hamper people from uh, working hard to gain a living and providing for their family and let a bunch of people could not go into work uh, this past week because their businesses were shut down. I think it's very possible Jesus might have healed the storms of the polar vortex today, but that was, that's the nature of his miracles. I used to, I think probably incorrectly, I used to probably teach miracles as uh, Jesus as creator of all the universe, showing his power over all the universe, suspending the laws of nature uh, momentarily. I think that's probably the wrong way to teach it, that he was intervening and suspending the laws of nature. I think Jesus' miracles are actually the most natural things that have ever happened in a fallen world. I think those moments are divine restorations to where the world actually is supposed to be. In a sick, fallen, dying, crying, suffering world, Jesus' miracles are a foreshadowing of what things really are supposed to be. And one day, because of his removal of sin, one day actually will be. Remember what the Apostle John says in Revelation 21. 
Uh, when Christ comes back and fully restores his kingdom, there will be no more crying, no more tears, no more mourning, no more suffering, no more pain, for the old order of things will have passed away. This fallen order that you and I are living in right now, the reason that we sense that this world is not quite okay and not the way that it should be is because one day the pieces are going to be put back together and Jesus' miracles in his ministry are literal foreshadowings of those days. See? So that's the purpose attached to the miracles. Now, the occasion for the miracles. Uh, I'm going to jump around to a couple different spots in the Gospels today to prove a couple of these points. But there's a really interesting statement in Mark chapter 6. Pastor Jeske actually preached on this in the morning services last week, if any of you were there. Uh, But it's a section where we're actually told, the Bible says, Jesus could not do any miracles in Nazareth except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. That is a crazy-sounding claim. Jesus could not do any miracles. Doesn't that sound insane? Now, what you have to understand is it's not that he couldn't do miracles because he lacked the power for them. If you understand the purpose of miracles is to show both the ability, the power, and the willingness, the love, to do everything necessary to usher in the coming kingdom, the restored kingdom for God's people. If you understand that that's the purpose, he doesn't lack, he couldn't not do them because he lacked the power to do them. He couldn't do them because he lacked the occasion to do them. See, if people in Nazareth have already made up their mind, we're not believing in Jesus Christ, we're not going to follow that guy as Lord and Savior, then the, the occasion for miracles becomes completely absent. There's no purpose, there's no occasion attached to it. Furthermore, what we see in our lesson tonight with the centurion and his servant, it's the perfect occasion for it. It's the backdrop of faith. When you look, when Jesus grants miracles, it's always into the occasion of the backdrop of faith. So, for instance, the centurion comes to Jesus and says, I have a servant who is paralyzed, and I'm asking you to heal him. And actually, in Luke's gospel, which is a parallel gospel account to this, we get more details. We learn that it's not the centurion who goes to Jesus. It's actually he sends out of respect for Jesus because the centurion is a Gentile and he knows that some Jews might consider it unclean for them to publicly interact uh, with a Jew. Some Jews might find it inappropriate to interact with a Gentile. He says, I'm going to send some Jewish messengers. And he sends uh, leaders, elders from the Jewish synagogue that he was the guy who financed it. See, he is a God-fearer amongst the Gentiles, but he recognizes uh, the God of the Israelites, and yet he he knows, because of different Jewish practices, he can't fully engage with those Jewish worshipers. What he does is he sends some of the Jewish elders to Jesus and says, uh, they say, we have this guy who's a wonderful guy. He has essentially bankrolled our whole synagogue. He is devout. He's virtuous, he's generous, and what they literally say is, in Luke 7, 4, it says, this man deserves to have you do this miracle for him. Now, that's very different from what the centurion says. A couple of verses later, in verse 6 in Luke 7, it says that when the centurion finds out that Jesus is coming to his house, he sends another messenger, and this is what he says. He says, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. Do you see what's happening there? From the religious leaders of the Jews' perspective, from the perspective of the guys who don't actually see Jesus probably as the Messiah, they look at Jesus and say, look at all the good things that he's done. Look at how worthy and how deserving he is. He deserves your love, acceptance, and blessing. But from the perspective of the centurion, 
who acknowledges that Jesus is his Lord and Savior, he does not at all say, I deserve your love, acceptance, and blessing. He's saying, I'm asking you to bless me and bless my servant, but I'm asking you to do it by grace. Now, if you were here last week, you know we went into a great detail about the difference between grace and the gospel and religion. And this is precisely the reason the centurion gets it. This is precisely the reason why Jesus uh, affirms what he says. And he says, I have not found faith in Israel anywhere near as strong as this guy's faith. It's not because the centurion believed so well and he did so many good things and his faith was so strong. It's because his faith was pointed in the right direction. He was not looking to his own goodness, which is what the religious leaders did. He was looking to the goodness of Jesus and looking to grace. See, that's the whole thing when he talks about that authority thing. And it's kind of hard to understand when you read through it. Verses 8 and 9 in our lesson, uh, the centurion talks about, um, I'm a man of authority. I understand authority. Uh, I am under authority of another. I have a lot of people under my own authority. He's not bragging. He's saying, I understand the nature of authority. If you remember that part, he says, uh, I have some soldiers underneath me, and if I say go, they'll go off into a distant land and they'll do whatever I tell them to do because they are under my sphere of authority. And so when he asks Jesus, and when he says to Jesus, you don't have to come to my house, you can just say it, and my servant will be healed. Do you understand what he's saying? He's saying my house is under your authority. Because I know you are the son of God and I know all of creation is under your authority and you don't even have to come over because the whole world is underneath you. See, it's a, that Jesus says that is a tremendous faith. And it's against that kind of backdrop of faith, that occasion, that Jesus grants the miracle. Okay, that brings me to the third point. The miracle worker himself, how does he bring forth miracles? We've said the purpose is that it points to the nature of the coming kingdom. When Jesus will restore all things, when he removes sin, he'll remove all the consequences of sin. And the miracles are a snapshot into the forthcoming kingdom. We said the occasion of the miracles that he grants is a tremendous faith that he is the one that can bring forth that kingdom. But the method, how does he do it? This is really interesting. And if you've been confused at all up until this point, unfortunately, we're getting more confusing here for just a second, but bear with me. Uh, I normally don't like to go too deep into what does the Greek actually say here, but we had a polar vortex this last week, and I was able to stare at this text for like 48 straight hours, and so I was able to see all sorts of crazy things. So, in reading the Greek, there's one word that very clearly Matthew structures his, this part of the gospel around. It's, it's, it's clear as day when you read it in Greek. It's the word ekbalo, which you can see from my lexicon on the screen there. Ekbalo means to throw out or drive out or send out. Jesus uses it in this text, excuse me, Matthew uses it in this text four times. And the reason you can't see it in English is because it's translated differently every time you come across it. Uh, so for instance, the first time he uses it, it's when the centurion says that my servant is paralyzed. He lies at home paralyzed. It literally says he has been thrown out or thrown down paralyzed. The next time, it's kind of the second one on the left-hand side in the middle there, when it uses this word ekbalo, what it's referring to is the Jews who have rejected Jesus Christ, who will not seat at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom. Uh, because they have rejected Christ, they will be cast out into the outer darkness. That's also ekbalo. The third time he uses it, is when we find Peter's mother-in-law, 
who is suffering terribly with some kind of sickness that's causing a great fever. And it says she's been thrown down or thrown out with a fever. Uh, Again, in the text, it just says she's sick. But this is the word that's used. And the fourth time that we find it here, it's actually uh, the time when it says numerous other people who were suffering from sickness and they had demon possession. It says Jesus drove out all of the demons. The words again is ekbalo. I think... What Matthew is trying to tell us here by very intentionally using the exact same word over and over and over is, guess what happens in life? You get thrown around a lot. You get thrown down a lot. Uh, If you don't think, I mean, this explains the reason why you feel so uh, powerless to control your own life. This is the reason why you feel so vulnerable most of the time. Uh, the, The centurion servant got thrown down by some terrible life circumstances. Paralysis must have come on by some kind of terrible accident. Peter's mother got, mother-in-law got thrown down by some terrible uh, sickness. All these other people got thrown down and thrown out by the, this demonization going on around them. The only time it's used differently is to describe the Jews who have rejected Jesus Christ and therefore they get cast outside the kingdom. I'm pretty sure what Matthew is trying to tell us right here is simply this. Life is very rough, and it will throw you around. And the only way that you know you can have hope moving forward is because at the cross, Jesus got thrown down in your place. The only way you will not have hope of being picked up and elevated again is if you reject Jesus Christ like some in the lesson that Jesus is saying will do. Life is tough. It throws you around. Wouldn't you like to come to a day where you can finally have peace? In order to see that day, you have to look at Jesus getting thrown around in your place. What does that mean? Uh, It's all in verse 17 in our lesson. This is a crazy, amazing verse. We usually read it around Easter time. Uh, Isaiah 53.4 says, Surely he took up our infirmities and he bore our diseases. Look at what it's saying there. Jesus doesn't just work miracles. He doesn't just heal people. He takes their sickness upon himself. You see the difference? Jesus doesn't wave a magic wand and make sickness goes away. In order to make people whole and healthy, he takes their sickness upon himself. One of the best ways to see this in the Gospels, maybe my favorite example of it, uh, actually comes in Luke chapter 8 because there's a woman there. You've heard this story before, many of you. There's a woman there who has been hemorrhaging for 12 years. And it says that she, she spends all of her money on going to different doctors and none of them can come up with any kind of cure for her. But finally, uh, she, she hears about Jesus, the miracle worker. She pushes her way through the crowd to get to him. She touches his cloak and immediately the bleeding stops. Immediately she's healed. And do you remember what Jesus says at that moment? It's really interesting. He says, somebody touched me. Well, he's in a crowd. A ton of people touched him. Someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Power goes out from him to her. For her to gain, he has to lose. For her to be healed, he has to become vulnerable. For her to get lifted up, Jesus has to be thrown down. You see how that works? Um, The same thing that happens in physical miracles. Jesus doesn't just heal people. He bears our diseases. 
He takes what's ours and bad and places it upon himself. And he takes what's good in him and he places it upon the others whom he's healing. He doesn't just erase disease. And you know what? The exact same thing that he does physically, he also does spiritually. Jesus doesn't just wave a magic wand and eliminate sins. He pays the price for all of our sins. He absorbs the punishment for all of our sins. In order for us to be pardoned, he has to be made to pay the debt. See, the miracles of Jesus, therefore, the third thing that they do is they teach us the method of our salvation. For us to become strong, he has to become weak. That's why the second part of the first part of this in Isaiah, I'm pretty sure, is talking about miracles, uh, like healing physical miracles. The second part of this is very clearly talking about spiritual miracles. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. You notice Jesus doesn't wave the wand and heal us, heal us physically or spiritually. He gets wounded in order to make it happen. Now, Interestingly, this principle, in order to lift somebody else up, you have to be made low. In order to make somebody else strong, you have to be made weak, that Jesus does for us. It actually works within our own spiritual lives as well. In order for you to receive the power that comes from Jesus alone, do you know what you have to do? You have to make yourself lowly. You have to get weak. In Christian circles, we usually call it repentance. You have to come to Jesus and say, I'm unqualified to run my own life. I cannot do this on my own. I need forgiveness. I need a savior. I'm sick with selfishness and sin, and I need a doctor to come in and heal me. And honestly, that is the single hardest person, hardest thing for any person I know to say. Um, the one thing I know in observing humanity is that none of us, uh, from adult right down to little child, wants to give up power in our lives. We don't want to give up perceived control or perceived freedom that exists in our lives. We'll gladly give up some of the responsibility that exists in our lives, but not the power or the control or the freedom. But on the cross, you know, who does that? On the cross, Jesus did it. That's exactly what he does on the cross. He forfeits the strength. He gives up the power. He gives up the control. He gives up his freedom. Why? Because he loves you and he wants you to have it. He wants to share it with you. That brings me to the final point here. The pattern that we've established in terms of making miracles is that the way you make others strong is by making yourself weak. Jesus does it for us. He does it by canceling our, our debts. He does it by paying for our sins. And because he did it, we will rule uh, eternally in heaven with him laying down your life to raise somebody else up. That's the basic principle. And that's the principle that he also says, as you people, with his spirit inside of you, that's how I want you to live your lives too. Raise others up and lay down your life in the same way that I did to bring you salvation. In fact, there's a spot in John's gospel in chapter 14 where he says, again, a kind of a crazy thing. He says, you know all of these miracles that you've perceived me doing? If you are in me, if you believe in me, if you have my spirit inside of you, you will do these things and even greater things. What on earth can that possibly mean? How on earth are God's people, Christians, going to do greater miracles than Jesus Christ himself did? Well, here's what I don't think it means. I'm pretty sure it doesn't mean that we're going to be able to go and lay our hands on people with cancer and remove all of their cancer. Uh, for instance, in the gospel or in the, the book of Acts, 
We find that Jesus' disciples are given the power to do some miracles, but as a general rule, their miracles are nowhere near on par with the miracles that Jesus himself conducted in his ministry. Here's what I think he actually means by this. I think he means that the entire body of believers working together can do extraordinary things that are, that are impossible for any one person, no matter how powerful they are, to do on their own. Believers working together, in a sense, can accomplish nearly miraculous things. Let me show you what I'm talking about here. Uh, again, because I had a little more time this week, I got opportunity. Here's how I spend my free time. I read the church fathers. And this past week, I got an opportunity to read a little more to Tertullian. Tertullian lived and worked around 200 AD, and this statement uh, that I was reading caught me. Here's what he says about the early Christian church before I give it to you. Here's the backdrop. He was noting all of the pagans and how they spent all their money. He said they, they spent it all on themselves. They build tremendous temples. They have lavish ceremonies. They give out all their money in wild debauchery and immoral living and throwing the best parties around. But that's not what I see the Christians doing is what he says. He says, the Christians, for their funds, are not taken thence and spent on feasts. Their money is not spent on drinking bouts and eating houses, but their money is spent supporting and burying poor people to supply the wants of boys and girls destitute of means and parents, uh, to supply the needs of old persons who are confined to the house, to the supply the needs of those who have suffered shipwreck, in other words, who have gone through catastrophic instances. And if there happen to be any in the mines or banished to the islands or shut up in the prisons for nothing but the fidelity to the cause of God's church, they become nurslings of their confession. Do you understand what he's saying here? Loneliness in children and elderly people was cured. Uh, starvation was cured. Infanticide and abortion at that time was cured. Uh, unemployment, to some extent, was remedied. Uh, sickness was remedied. Christians were graciously giving away their time, their energy, their money, the same way that they believed Jesus had done for them. Just imagine the credibility that that gave the message and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it worked. History says it worked. Many people came to believe precisely because they saw the unbelievably good news of salvation by grace alone being illustrated in the lives of the Christians who were blessing them by grace alone. A few of us uh, from St. Marcus went to a symposium earlier this week. It was a poverty symposium. Uh, they do it every year here in Milwaukee and talk about faith organizations and, and the role they can play in their communities and addressing various social issues, including poverty. And the keynote speaker there uh, was an interesting guy named Kevin Palau who wrote a book uh, called Unlikely. And it's about the impact of Christians working together graciously to serve their community. And here was part of his story. He said that he's a minister in Portland. And a couple years ago, he and a bunch of other churches in the city got together. Portland's one of the least uh, churched areas in the country, if you don't know. Uh, he and some of the other Christian churches in the country, not very large churches at that, got together and they met with the mayor of the city of Portland. And this is the mayor of the city of Portland at the time was the first openly gay mayor in a, in a major metropolitan area in the country. And they, they asked the mayor, what can we do as a collaboration and collection of churches to be a blessing to the city? What do you see as the primary needs? And the mayor at the time pointed to a bunch of the problems going on in the public school system. And they said, some of our, our schools are an absolute disaster. Our graduation rates are abysmal. He pointed them to a couple of examples. And you know what they did? Those churches, which again, weren't great and didn't have a ton of resources. Uh, they weren't gigantic, but they, they worked together 
and they essentially sort of adopted one of the poorest public high schools in the neighborhood. And they essentially sort of mentored every kid in the 400 high school uh, person, uh, 400 child, 400 student high school. Within two years' time, I think it was two years, the graduation rate in that high school jumped 20%. Do you, 20%. Do you know if we could make a proposition to our, let's say, Wisconsin government that said, we can guarantee to you uh, that if we do something, we can raise the graduation rates in the poorest schools, uh, high schools in our state by 20%. I'm sure our local government would say, how many billions of dollars is that going to cost us? And it didn't come by throwing money at it, and it didn't come by any one person's effort. It came because a bunch of evangelical Christians who believed that Jesus Christ laid down his lives for them collectively laid down part of their lives in order to help out some teens. If you're willing to let go of power, you can raise up life. If you're willing to become weak, you can make others strong. You already know this, by, by the way. Intuitively, you know this. You know this because when you're really humble and you're really gracious around other people, do you notice how it makes them feel? Do you notice how it makes them more comfortable and it makes them more confident? What's the dynamic that's going on in that moment? You are lowering yourself, and in the process, you're helping lift them up. Amazing things happen when Christians collectively let go of their pride. They let go of their own personal agendas. They let go of their time and their money and their energy, and they give out their hearts freely to offer up care for the world around them. Every church, every group of believers has to be asking ourselves, not just individually but collectively, how does God use us to bless our community? How is God going to use us to bless our neighborhood? Remember the people who got healed in this account. It, it was the centurion servant who got thrown down by some terrible life event and got paralyzed. It was Peter's mother who got thrown down by some terrible sickness. It was the numerous others who got thrown down by some terrible demon possession. How are we collectively going to work together as a people to address the problems of those who have suffered traumatic, terrible events, of those who are suffering from sicknesses in society, and those who are suffering from the demonization that goes on in society? We can, and according to this, at a near miraculous rate, but it requires us to become weak. It requires us to give up, give up of ourselves give up of our time and our energy and our money and our hearts and sacrificially love. And those efforts very often are what make truth claims that we speak about the good news of Jesus that much more real in the minds of the watching world. Let's close with a prayer. Lord Jesus, forgive us for under underestimating you, for lacking faith and underestimating what you're capable of accomplishing through us. Thank you, Jesus, for taking our weakness and our sin and the punishment for our lack of faith upon yourself and in doing so, giving us your righteousness and making us strong. Make us bold servants who sacrificed to lift others up and to lift up your name. Bless us with near miraculous results. And Lord Jesus, as we come to your table tonight, Give us assurance of forgiveness for past mistakes. Give us a strength that comes from knowing you actually dwell in us by your spirit. 
and give us a unity that recognizes that when we come to this table together, we are coming with an entire community of people and we're capable of accomplishing so much more together than we ever are as individuals. May it be to your glory. In your name we pray. Amen.